0: Hello and welcome back to Slightly Foxed and our new and extended quarterly podcast. This time we'll be discussing Joseph Johnson and his literary salon, founded in the late 18th century in the shadow of St Paul's Cathedral and a foundation stone of modern publishing. We are delighted to have two eminent writer academics with us, I'll introduce them in a moment. First, though, hello to Foxed editors Gail Perkins and Hazel Wood. We're recording remotely for various reasons this time. It has been a while. How are you both? It has. Good morning. Um, We're very well, I think, aren't we, Hazel? We are. Bearing up. Yes, yes, Yes. Yes.
1: bearing up.
2: What's happening at Slightly Foxed? We are getting ready for Christmas, I'm afraid to say. Um, (laughs) Yes, of course. (laughs) You always start
0: so early.
1: I know, I know. So the
2: winter issue, issue 76, is being printed pretty much as we speak, and that's got some lovely things in it. We've got a delightful piece on Elizabeth Gaskell's Cranford, Mm. something on The Prisoner of Zender, which is a book I loved as a child. Yes, Books about the life of a robin and the lives of trees. A lovely piece on the Polish writer Adam Zagajewski something on a Nina Blyton book, uh, Damon Runyon's Broadway short stories. So, wow. you know, the usual wide-ranging mix of things. Yes. We've also got the next Slightly Fox edition is at the printers, and this is a delicious diary by the son of Kenneth Clark of Civilization, who spent three months in 1956 at Pinewood Studios on set with Laurence Olivier and Marilyn Monroe. And it's a wonderful behind-the-scenes view of what went on during the making of the film and his, in some respects, surprising encounters with Marilyn Monroe. (laughs)
1: Yes, and it's (laughs) very funny because it's a complete sort of clash of cultures, poor Sir Lawrence trying to cope with Marilyn and her entourage. It wasn't an easy time for either of them, I Her voice coach and so on. It's yeah. very, very funny.
2: And then we're also reissuing, as a Plain Fox edition, Edward Ardazzoni's memoir of his childhood and his youth, The Young Ardazzoni, and that, for Christmas, it's... The most beautifully illustrated memoir, so we're very pleased to have that back in print again. Um, G- Gail, before we go any further, have have you any of your dogs with you? We've got Chudley is sitting opposite me, and um, poor old chap, he's now thirteen and a half, and has got heart failure, so uh. occasionally he has um, a bit of a spasm, but he's he's well. He went for a decent walk yesterday, and uh, he still likes his food, so
0: he soldiers on. I'm glad to hear it. He's a lovely dog. Well, if we hear from him on the podcast, I'm sure we'll all be delighted. So so don't worry about it if. <laughs> If he contributes, as he has done so many times before. (laughs) Um, Let's meet our guest. Daisy Hay is Associate Professor in English Literature and Life Writing at the University of Exeter and the author of a new book called Dinner with Joseph Johnson. Hello, Daisy. Hello. Where are you? I am at home in Exeter, so I apologise if you hear traffic rumbling past. Oh, we're used to that sort of thing on the podcast. Don't worry about it. Um, Catherine Sutherland is a Professor of English and Senior Research Fellow of St Anne's College at the University of Oxford. Hello, Catherine. I think you are in Oxford, aren't you? Hello. Yes, I am in Oxford and I too am at
3: home and uh, a rather busy street just outside my window with what sounds like a little bit of digging work going on, which we might hear
0: occasionally. Well, we've contended with worse. (laughs) Welcome both. Thanks for being with us. Now, Joseph Johnson, he was a bookseller and a publisher. He had premises at 72 St. Paul's Churchyard. That's right opposite what was then, I believe, the tallest building in London, St. Paul's Cathedral. Now, Daisy, he may not be a familiar name to most of us, but the reason we're talking about Johnson is that once a week, for I think it was nigh on 30 years, wasn't it, he held a dinner party.
4: That's right, yes. And although we might not have heard of him, he's a figure who helps to produce some of the work which makes... The end of the 18th century one of the most exciting and famous moments in English literary history so he's an enormously influential figure in terms of the people he brings together and the conversations he creates and the way in which he stands behind some names who are very famous today but also some who are less famous now but were incredibly important in their own historical moment
0: this is the late 1770s As you say, a good number of the regular guests went on to become people we definitely do talk about today. Do you want to give us just a sprinkling before we get into the detail?
4: Absolutely. Figures like Wordsworth and Coleridge. Both of them were not by any means the kind of dominant celebrities around his table. Rather, they were young men hustling, looking for an inn. A very, very famous figure is William Blake, but he appeared at Johnson's dining room, not as a writer primarily, but as Johnson's staff engraver. Another figure whose name reverberates on the centuries is Mary Wollstonecraft, who was very, very close to Johnson and a regular attendee at his dinners, along with William Godwin, who she would later marry. And then there are a host of figures who are kind of the giants of the 18th century, but whose names might be less familiar to us. The philosopher Joseph Priestley, the artist Henry Fuseli, Erasmus Darwin, the great writer of nature and one of the lunar men of Birmingham. And then another figure who never came to dinner, but who is incredibly important in Johnson's circle is the poet William Cooper. So a great big range of names and figures around his table and coming in and out of his house on paper as well.
0: It's such a fascinating tale, this. But before we get onto to the importance of the conversations all those people were having, tell us a bit about him. I mean, who was he? How did he come to be selling books in London?
4: So he was born in Liverpool in 1738 to a Baptist family. And when he was 14, he was sent south and apprenticed to a Baptist bookseller called George Keith. But it became clear as soon as Johnson was freed of his apprenticeship that his own horizons were much broader than those of the Baptist community that he'd come from. And early on in his own bookselling career he had a number of hits which really made his name and he spread his net wide publishing medical textbooks, all sorts of things from very early. He moved away from the Baptist faith to become a Unitarian. He was very influenced by Joseph Priestley, his new writer. So he moved quite far from those Liverpool Baptist roots, but he retained a strong sense of connection and allegiance to family in Liverpool and to the kind of network of kin that he came from.
0: Catherine, just to do a bit of scene setting, what was the publishing world and the book trade like at that time? Well,
3: Joseph Johnson being situated in St Paul's churchyard was essentially at the heart of what had been the book trade since medieval times, so since scriveners were copying out manuscript by hand, so this was the absolute core of the book trade. And by the late 18th century, you have a huge change really, um, which was partly a social revolution and partly as well a technological revolution in what was going on, both in the trade and in reading practices. I mean, he was, a bookseller, which means that he conflated what we now think of as the work of a publisher and a retailer. And this was a time, the late 18th century, of great social, political, cultural change, with discontent in the American colonies, revolution brewing across the Channel. It was also a time when all kinds of material for reading was being developed you have the earliest periodicals you have newspapers you have pamphlets you have a range of literary genres the novel is just coming up and as well you get literature becoming um, available in cheaper forms too so there really is a communication revolution going on
0: yeah i mean as you say it's it's a fascinating moment in history i think the american revolution it's ongoing the french revolution it's about to start Enormous seismic changes are taking place. Johnson's having these dinners, oh, there (laughs) There he
2: is.
0: (laughs) He's agreeing. (laughs) Sorry, he's been taken away. It's completely fine, as always, Gail. I think we always like to hear from him. So, Daisy, in the midst of all these seismic events, these fascinating raft of new ideas coming through, paint us a picture of one of these dinners. I mean, these are not posh dinners, are they?
4: They're certainly not posh dinners, and it's pretty clear that people didn't come to dinner because of the quality of the food. There are two different accounts of a Johnson dinner, spaced about 25 years apart, and the menu is almost identical. So you had cod and veal and boiled vegetables and uh, rice pudding, and that was about it, really. Mm. One guest comments that Johnson's shopmen would come bringing their beer, which the guests thought was a revolting practice, but there would be wine for the others. Dinner takes place in the late 18th century towards the end of the afternoon before the light goes. If you right. get peckish, you might have supper at the end of the evening. And there is space where in Johnson's house in 72 St Paul's churchyard, his dining room is a kind of described as an odd crooked room where none of the walls are at right angles. On the walls hangs one of the sketches for Fuseli's famous painting, The Nightmare. So it's a strange dark room. But people come, either people who are sort of chance visitors to the shop, but also it becomes a real meeting point for Johnson's friends, for the people he publishes. And at one point, there's one dinner where one guest down from Edinburgh says it feels like they were 18 rather than eight sitting around the table. So they clearly could be quite noisy and contentious.
0: And it was all quite hit and miss, wasn't it, about who was there? It wasn't as if he was sending out invitations in any sort of formal way.
4: That's absolutely right, it's, There's a, an account of him standing at the door and saying to kind of chance met people, "How do you, how do you do? I dine at four. But there are definitely some regular attendees. Fuseli is there very regularly, at various different points in the historical arc of Johnson's life. So is William Godwin, the philosopher. So there is a, a kind of shifting cast, but with a quite stable core of Johnson himself, the young men who helped him in the shop, Fuseli. Joseph Priestley on his long winter visits to London, and then other people depending on the kind of historical moment that we're in. And Catherine was talking about this kind of communication revolution and the sheer variety of forms in which print could influence and disseminate ideas. And the speed of that in the late 18th century means that, you know, an argument hammered out over dinner could be in print within a few days and on sale within a few days more. So in a pamphlet. In a pamphlet, exactly. So yeah. this is a kind of hub for the exchange of ideas, which could clearly be extremely tempestuous and some blazing rows. There's a description at one point of one dinner guest, the Catholic theologian Alexander Gides, becoming so cross that he had to kind of leave and stomp round St. Paul's a couple
0: of times to calm down. <laughs> Well, yes, it's interesting you mentioned Fuseli's painting on the wall, The Nightmare, but you know, that's a pretty remarkable painting. It strikes me that it sets the tone that in that room, all things can be discussed, doesn't it? That's
4: absolutely right. It is a, a truly remarkable painting. It was exhibited at the Royal Academy in 1781. And for anyone who doesn't know it, it's the painting of the young sleeping woman in white with a kind of incubus, a t- little monster crouched on her chest. It's probably not that painting, which was in the dining room at 72 St. Paul's Churchyard, but Fuseli, for a long period, was Johnson's lodger. He used Johnson's house, even when he wasn't lodging there, as a kind of extension of his own. So probably what we have in the room is either preparatory sketches or one of the other versions. So it is often read today as a kind of depiction of the untrammeled romantic imagination, This is not strictly a romanticist circle, although there are figures who we will come to associate with the romantic movement there. But certainly as a kind of image for the power of the imagination, for the power of the human mind to create and then be terrified by its own visions, the painting offers a very powerful image of that. Yeah, quite an erotic image, isn't it? Well, it depends on your point of view, I think. <laughs> <laughs> certainly for some people there. And Erasmus Darwin writes about it in quite eroticized terms. So absolutely, it definitely kind of, in terms of its representation of this vulnerable young woman, it certainly kind of attracted a lot of attention, a lot of quite scandalised attention when it was first exhibited.
0: Yeah, so essentially not a bland piece of art to have on the wall in, in your dining room. In no sense, um, no. I mean, I use the term literary salon, but I mean, that's rather a loaded word, isn't it? You, we think about you know, aristocratic women hosting drinks parties. But his dinners, I mean, there was a real mix of people around the table, as you've said. I mean, not least William Blake, you mentioned, you know, referred to as Blake the engraver. I mean, he, he was not a posh person, was he? But he was sitting down with some significantly more affluent and well-known people.
4: That's absolutely right. No, I mean, it's interesting to think about it as literary salon, because this is a much more heterogeneous group in terms of its kind of social makeup. And Johnson himself really thinks of himself as a tradesman. And his relationship with Blake, in particular, is really as of two kind of mutually respected tradespeople, each a kind of master of their craft. So this is not a kind of literary group in that many people around the table although writing is their medium are not first and foremost literary writers johnson's authors encompass doctors and natural philosophers and theologians artists and historians as well as people who might sort of describe themselves as being primarily a literary craft people but it is absolutely a place where it's the written word is the dominant form johnson himself is a literary man in terms of the amount of work he engenders and makes possible. But it's not that the novel or the poem is the kind of dominant artistic form in this moment. It sits alongside, in everything Johnson publishes, a kind of enormous variety of different genres and types of text.
0: I mean, Gail Hazel, I don't know what you thought when you read this, but I, I was wondering about how some of those posher guests might have felt about sitting down in that sort of mixed company.
4: I think it's interesting to think about class in terms of this circle because there's definitely a sense that for some of Johnson's writers, like, for example, Richard Lovell Edgeworth and his novelist daughter, Mariah, although they respect Johnson a very great deal, there is a kind of class differentiation around how they think about him. I mean, it was Richard Lovell Edgeworth who said, though a bookseller, he has the soul of a gentleman. And for someone like William Cooper, who appears in the dining room only via the medium of paper, he never visits, but he and Johnson have an enormously important relationship about books and about the work of Cooper's that Johnson edits. There is a kind of anxiety around this. Johnson is Cooper's editor, as we would understand a modern publisher action as an editor, he sends comment. And Cooper says that Johnson's comments on his great poem, The Task, are among the most incisive he ever receives. But yet he's sort of also a bit like an upper servant, someone who makes your words into books. And this creates an enormous amount of anxiety, particularly for those who like Cooper, who are perhaps a bit less sure of their own social position. For those who are quite settled in terms of their own position in society, these things don't matter so much. But for those who exist slightly on the margins themselves, these quite nuanced distinctions around class are really important.
1: I was just very struck by you know how sort of versatile Johnson was you know, doing all these things. He was obviously a very sort of skilful editor, wasn't he? But also, you know, providing this kind of background, I, I found him quite sort of fascinating. He was, he was sort of there, but in a sense, sort of shadowy. He really provided for his writers, didn't he? People like Mary Wollstonecraft and so on, and really sort of took care of them.
4: He really does. And that's really important. I mean, it's for some of the people who come to dinner at St Paul's Churchyard, it's a nice evening. For others, it's food and shelter in quite kind of real and substantial ways. So when Wollstonecraft arrives in London, she stays with Johnson for a number of weeks while together they organise a house for her and then she becomes his staff reviewer for his journal, The Analytical Review. She says in a letter to her sister that Johnson is going to make her the first of a new genus, by which she means the professional woman writer. And she's no such thing. There are other women writers who come before her, but she is very early or about the first to make a living solely by her pen, to have no other sort of sort of independent income to sustain her. And it's enormously important to her that at St Paul's Churchyard there is a community, but there's also support in quite practical ways. And particularly in the 1790s, after the French Revolution, when for about a decade, life in Britain, for those who we might think about, loosely speaking, as liberal thinkers or radicals, Life is incredibly fraught and stressful and dangerous. As in reaction to the revolution, Pitt's government enacts a series of quite repre- very repressive measures. A, sense, a house in which you can speak and live freely, and exchange ideas with like-minded people becomes incredibly important. So, you know, Catherine described the role of the bookseller as being part salesman, part publisher, part maker of books, part editor, part kind of connector of all the different trades involved in the making of a book. And that certainly spreads Johnson very thinly over the course of the late decades of the 18th century. But it also enables him to kind of work in a huge variety of ways.
3: I, th- I think as well, he um, he has to tread a careful line, doesn't he, between friendship and between The trade actually making enough money to keep afloat and to keep all his interests and indeed all these people who come to depend on him, to keep them afloat too. I mean, he is a great enabler of this early part of the Romantic period, but it's enabling, which can be at times precarious because of balancing friendship against profits he has to make money. Absolutely. That became something of an issue with Cooper didn't it?
0: Didn't they fall out over copyright?
3: They did fall out over copyright and of course Cooper's copyrights were immensely valuable to Johnson because Cooper was such a popular poet in his time and He effectively, his work subsidised so much else that Johnson was taking a risk upon. I think the other thing we shouldn't forget, and it's part of the same thing, is that the dining room where they met was also the room that during the day was where all the business was conducted too so it was it was his desk as well as his dining table
4: absolutely and this is a place where the private life and public living don't really it's not a distinction that really holds up no I was just going to add that Cooper does get extremely cross at one point when he discovers that erasmus darwin has been paid more um for a piece of work than he has and so that yeah money is a real proxy too in terms of how you think about
0: worth um absolutely and mary wilsoncraft had some conversations didn't she with johnson along the same lines at various stages that tension between the personal and the financial relationship
4: That's absolutely right. And Johnson is often talked about as someone who kind of enabled Wollstonecraft and saved her career and enabled her to write. That's all true. But it's also true that he didn't pay her more than he thought she was worth. He didn't (laughs) lift her out of the precarity, which was an absolutely dominant feature financially of her life. There are always these decisions. There are always intention between holding house together, which, as Catherine says, Entails looking after the livelihood of a quite large number of people and acting according to the principles of kind of political ideals or friendship. So, Johnson, for example, withdraws at very late notice from publishing part two of Thomas Paine's Rights of Man, possibly because he's visited by government agents who tell him that if he does, his entire business will be closed down, but possibly also because he just judges the risks to his entire operation and to the friends and authors and nephews and nieces who depend on his business for their own livelihoods, to be too great. He will never put the principles allied to a particular publication above the best interests of the whole operation.
0: Interesting. I mean, you mentioned Thomas Paine. He jumped out for me. I mean, obviously, he was a staunch supporter of both the American and the French revolutions. And as you say, the British government looked at him with a very dubious eye, didn't they? So he, he was quite a dangerous person to associate with, as, as his publisher, presumably.
4: He absolutely was. And Johnson is definitely allied with him in some of the very conservative reaction against pain that you find in newspapers of the day. So it's not a straightforward thing to do to be a supporter of pain. So it's a very fine line. But Catherine was also talking a short while ago about cost. And there's a letter in the archive from the attorney general, John Scott, which essentially says that Johnson will be prosecuted if he publishes cheap editions of Payne's work that can reach the masses. Expensive editions, which can only be read by those who aren't going to have their heads turned, as one thing – but cheap editions are seen as potentially much more dangerous by the government. That is
0: fascinating. So, yes, don't go down that pamphlet route. Yeah. That is very interesting. I mean, Gail, you, these conversations with writers, they must be familiar territory for you, aren't they?
2: It, it, honestly, it hasn't changed. The idea that um, you know a publishing house is sustained by the money earned by one particular author to help support others. I mean, certainly in, in small businesses, that still continues. The tensions between profit and quality between doing what you feel is right in publishing, writing terms, but at the same time, you know, you've got the bills to pay and you've got staff
0: to pay. Um, And navigating that personal relationship with people you may really like and and become friends with, but actually business is business.
2: Yes. And and then people who write wonderfully, who are tricky and and people who are wonderful, but their writing's not so great. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's a minefield and... I think describing Johnson as an enabler I mean that that's what publishers are they're enablers they're the connection that makes things happen, but they're not the the creators mm.
3: john Johnson was known for cheapening books so that uh, a wider readership could reach them uh, in his obituary of Johnson, his own writer John Aiken talks about the fact that Johnson was always careful to use the cheapest possible paper he could without compromising the quality of a book because he wanted his books to reach as many readers as possible.
1: I, I was just struck by, uh, you know, these were all very sort of passionate people, weren't they? And Johnson had, you know, all these sort of personal undercurrents going on as well, didn't he? I mean, I wasn't Mary Wollstonecraft very keen on Fuseli and at one point actually suggested that she should join his marriage. Is that right? There's a certain of controversy about this because the only records that we have left are
4: really documents which have been edited and collated by men. Um, one of the chief sources for the story, well, there are two. One is William Godwin's memoir of Wollstonecraft, but the other is The Bug Refusely by his friend John Knowles. So Wollstonecraft's voice is occluded in this episode. Clearly, something happened which was Emotionally enormously intense. But whether or not that had her as pursuer or Fusili as harasser is something which has been kind of discussed by her own biographers in quite some detail. Johnson was clearly though very, very worried that her association with Fusili was leading her into pain and heartache. And there are letters between them which are have not been censored in quite the same way, where you can see a kind of tension where she accuses him of being essentially kind of too wintry or too rational in his approach to matters of the heart.
0: So, Did she not feel at one stage that, that Johnson was trying to marry her off to someone respectable to, to solve this kind yeah, of Yeah, and thing?
4: she's absolutely furious by this. There's also suggestion at one point that she she they delight in the idea that a rumour has reached fairies of their friends that they've married each other. That absolutely is never on the cards. And I think one of the things that connects Johnson and Wollstonecraft is that both know what it's like to be both alone in the world, but to have on your shoulders the care of a difficult, needy, not particularly emotionally rewarding family. Um, I mean, Johnson has a different kind of emotional relationship to his family, but he really helps Wollstonecraft with the very complex financial dealings that come as a result of the behaviour of her father and her brothers. And that sense that he knows what it's like to have the cares of a family on your shoulders is something, I think, which really connects them.
0: And would it be fair to say that Fuseli, well, not not short on ego? Uh,
4: no, I think that's, that is fair. But Fuseli, I mean, he's clearly an incredibly difficult character. But towards Johnson, he is enormously loyal. And the relationship between Fuseli and Johnson is probably, well, it is the most important to Johnson's life. Towards the end of Johnson's life, Fuseli acts almost like a spouse or a carer in the way in which he Puts his own pursuits second in order to look after Johnson in his old age. When I tried to think about how to conceptualise this relationship, I had to turn to much kind of older conceptualisations of male friendship to think about the way in which, say, someone like the, the writer and scholar Alan Ray thinks about early modern male friendship to find a way of writing about this relationship which wasn't anachronistic. Which honoured its closeness but didn't seek to kind of impose 20th or 21st century labels on it.
0: Yeah, because I mean, Fuseli was very impoverished, wasn't he, when they first met? He was, and one of the concerns that binds them together is
4: how Fuseli can make a living from his art in a way that doesn't completely suborn his own artistic vision. And they come up with various schemes about how that model of 18th century artistic patronage might be reinvented for what's to them as the modern age, so that Fuseli can have a steady income, but also carry on painting in the ways he needs to paint. But it's never straightforward.
0: Catherine, we talked about Mary Wollstonecraft. There are lesser known women, but I mean, there were various women, What they, involved in this literary circle? And I was thinking about the poet Anna Barbold. There were indeed. I mean, over his long
3: career, Johnson was involved in the publication of, of many women's work. I mean, as early as 1774, he's publishing Mary Scott's work, The Female Advocate. Certainly in the 1980s, when, you know, the second wave of feminism, we were rediscovering many 18th century writers. Uh, Mary Scott was, was amongst them. Her poem, The Female Advocate, is very important. Also, yes, a woman called Mrs. Sarah Trimmer, who was, in fact, a conservative writer for children, but an extremely prolific writer, and Johnson published her work too. She was a high church mother of 12 writing for children. She was almost the Mary Whitehouse to (laughs) Wollstonecraft's Germaine Greer, you know, in their polarized views, but they were both invited into the Johnson circle. Also Charlotte Smith, who was immensely popular novelist and poet of the period. Would that have been unusual? at the time? It was a period when women were beginning to have a voice. You know, we forget that actually in these years, the late 18th, early 19th century, uh, women had a powerful voice. They didn't 50 years later, they were closed down again. Yes. I think one of the things we could perhaps remember about Johnson is that although he was this great enabler and many of his writers were giants, He was also, and they were also, outsiders because they were part of the dissenting community. In other words, they were educated within their own dissenting academies like the Great Warrington Academy because their religious dissent forbade them from accepting Church of England doctrine. There were direct social consequences. They couldn't go to Oxford or Cambridge. They couldn't hold high public office. Joseph Priestley, one of Johnson's writers, was nominated as official scientist on Captain Cook's second expedition, but that nomination was overturned on account of his beliefs. If they went to university, these writers went to university in Scotland and Holland. They were very obviously outside the British establishment, and I think being outside might although women in the dissenting academies weren't given the same opportunities as men for education, they were treated with greater sympathy, I think. And uh, Anna Barbold was the sister of John Aiken, one of Johnson's writers, and Anna herself eventually became a, a writer for Johnson too. So I think there's the sense in which these women found some kind of sympathetic hearing amongst men who perceived themselves to have as it
0: were, to have faced some obstacles in life. Yes, I mean, Daisy, that was the thing that I think I drew from the book, and it's a fantastic read, it's a big read, so enjoying it, I haven't got to the end of it yet, but this common thread of the very diverse characters round the table over the years, it did seem to me that it was, it was essentially, it was, wasn't it, dissent, and if not active dissenting, revolutionary ideas about their own areas.
4: That's absolutely right. And it's so important that sense in which to be an outsider bars you from a lot of things, but it also connects you to other people who are also outsiders. So there's a sense of allegiance and of a kind of shared history is something which comes through again and again. And what it does is it inspires so many of these writers to think very actively about how to create the world, how to make a world which is better for the young. You know, what is it you need to teach the young, so that the generation afterwards will not find this these kind of old, calcified decisions between establishment and dissenters. So some of the work that Johnson publishes for children, although it might seem quite far removed from, say, a political pamphlet, is almost some of the most revolutionary things he produces. The idea that you have to equip tiny children to read by showing them a version of themselves which is familiar, is something which makes Anna Barbo's work incredibly famous. And it's absolutely pioneering technologically, and it reminds me a little bit actually in terms of, about the, the Slightly fox books for children, in terms of its, you know, the, the, F, the aim is to have something that a child can hold and see in themselves a version of childhood which is recognisable. And Johnson and Priestley publish books about the education of adolescence, in which they emphasize that you need to teach modern languages, not just Latin and Greek. You need to teach a sense of European and world history. They are equipping young men, but also the sisters who are reading these books at home too, with what they need to be citizens of a kind of metropolitan world, and almost a globalized world in terms of how Johnson and Priestley and those around them think about the way that knowledge disseminates across Europe and throughout the world. So. The, educa- the work around education, and also work which is about how do you alleviate suffering, particularly whether that's you know, medical tracks, and John Aitken publishes work about hospitals and says, well, if you're building new hospitals, make sure that air can circulate. There is a kind of shared, in work that looks very different, there is a shared thread about improving the lot of those who are excluded but also education the new generation so those old divisions fall away which you can see almost in every genre Johnson publishes.
0: And of course as we've mentioned this is against the background of the American Revolution, the French Revolution, it's almost impossible to overstate how seismic those events looked from England at the time isn't it? That The terror that that stuff might come here and whether you saw that as an opportunity to change things for the better or a threat. That's absolutely right, yeah. It seems to me the people around that table saw it as, they might not have been supporters of these revolutions, but they saw that as an opportunity.
4: This is a moment in history where the cars are thrown into the air and no one is quite sure how they're going to land. For Johnson and his writers, America offers a version of how to live with a kind of level of religious tolerance in the first decades after the War of Independence, which is a kind of model. And yes, although the French Revolution turned sour, the possibility it represents is just enormous.
3: What Daisy said is hugely important. I think the other thing for the dissenting communities is the model of conversation. Anna children's books are often presented as a dialogue between the teacher and the child. And conversation, how many voices you hear, the diversity of voices, is an emancipatory model for dissenters dissenters believe very much in debate, in discussion, in reaching accommodation with people you don't
0: necessarily agree with. Yes, and all very different to 50 years
3: later, isn't it?
0: Or even now,
3: where people uh, stay in their silos and uh, cancel culture. This is the idea that print can be called back to speech in a strange way, that there is something vital and powerful in conversation. And those who have the conversation have their place in relationship to change and to power. Who is in on the conversation determines who has the power to change things. And so you bring the children into the conversation, you bring women into the conversation, you bring as many different points of view into conversation as possible.
4: It's also enormously important then that you have access to a medium which allows you to disseminate that conversation. So conversations that happen at St Paul's churchyard can then reappear in different forms in print. The sermons that Lindsay preaches at his Unitarian chapel in Essex Street might only reach a few hundred people in person, but in print they can travel right through the country. So the way in which you can then represent conversation or the kind of culture of dissenting conversation in journals and periodicals and pamphlets is again kind of emancipatory. And, you know, we're talking about those voices who are shut out. And I think it's really important to mention that Johnson is one of the chief publishers of Olada Equiano's interesting narrative, which is the classic memoir of enslavement by a writer who experiences the Middle Passage. And this is also an overtly abolitionist circle too. Not everything Johnson publishes is in support of abolition. And sometimes he publishes things he does not appear to agree with. But the overwhelming volume of the work he publishes and that everyone who sits around his table works for abolition as a kind of central plank of their existence.
1: I must say I I was very fascinated by the picture of the sort of dissenting community. I'm afraid it's something that I knew very little about and the things that happened in Birmingham when the mobs sort of attacked dissenters' houses and and all that. I didn't really know about that. They certainly had a difficult life, didn't they? Well, there was too a powerful
3: counter-revolutionary movement going on. You know, who controls the public and public opinion? There was a counter-move by conservative writers. We think of Mary Wollstonecraft as the radical but you have in the same period a writer like Hannah Moore who is writing for the state and the establishment writing cheap tracts designed to keep people in their place tracts with titles like half a loaf is better than no bread (laughs) and so you know that people were essentially being stirred up on, on both sides so yes to be a dissenter you could find yourself in a very dangerous place.
2: We haven't haven't mentioned another very eminent guest, and I'm just thinking because we have a lot of American listeners to the podcast, that uh, Benjamin Franklin
0: yes, was a guest. Absolutely. Can you
2: tell us more about
4: him, Daisy? He's a guest early on in Johnson's career, when he's living in London, just off the Strand, and writing books about electricity. And Johnson connects him with Priestley, who is also writing books about electricity. And a great friendship emerges between Priestley and Franklin, and Franklin is one of the earliest worshippers at the Unitarian Chapel on Essex Street that Johnson helps to found. And just before he leaves London for America, when it was becoming clear that he's going to have to go back to America, and that actually he's beginning to be slightly at risk if he remains in in England, and then. Once he's gone, Johnson publishes a huge English edition of his works and so keeps his voice alive. There's a wonderful letter in which Priestley says, Franklin thinks, there is little he can do now in England, but he might do some good in America. A kind of amazingly prophetic bit of writing just as he leaves.
0: I mean, presumably that was quite a hazardous thing for Johnson to do. Less
4: so than the work he does in the 1790s, because the American War happens elsewhere. But it certainly marks Johnson as a publisher who is not going to toe the establishment line very early on. Mm.
3: And he is long time in the government sights, isn't he? They're, they're watching him carefully, watching what he publishes, and watching, too, not just what he publishes, but what he sells in his bookshop. Because he isn't just selling his own books, he's selling works by other publishers, some of whom are more radical than he is. Absolutely, that lands him in prison. Yes, you know, that's when what it wanna... does eventually, isn't yeah. it? It's not one of his own publications.
4: No, it's a government put a spy on a shopping trip into his shop yeah. to find Tell a us girl. about that. Johnson is sent to prison for selling a copy of a work by someone called Gilbert Wakefield, in which he just says that if the French army should land, he will continue to sit quietly in his study and write on theology. And it's, that that is the paragraph in the work, work by Wakefield that gets Johnson into a lot of trouble. But this pamphlet is sold all over London and Johnson is arrested for selling it in 1798. As soon as he hears that it's been forbidden, he has his shop cleared of it, but it's too late because a government spy called John Hancock has already been to the shop. And that's very clear evidence that, as Catherine said, he is in the sightlines of Pitt's administration. They want him on trial for something. And this is it. So he goes to prison for six months. He's sent to the King's Bench prison in Southwark, but put up in lodgings there. And he continues to have people to dinner, just in rather different circumstances.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but he continues on, just like that. He does. He has to close the
4: Analytical Review, which is his in-house journal after that. I mean, prison certainly changes him he's older he has asthma prison represents a kind of reckoning with his own past and a moment when you can really see him beginning to think about what kind of legacy he's going to pass on to his heirs but no he definitely he keeps going and in his last decade in business in the 1800s it's when he publishes Charlotte Smith the first work by the young William Hazlitt uh, the work of Humphrey Davy the chemist some really exciting and Charlotte Smith some really exciting new voices join his list in that last decade
0: I mean, Catherine, as we've said, the kind of physicality, the printing, the circulation of books, it was all changing around that time, wasn't it? Move to books that uh, less affluent people could afford to buy. There was. There was um, a great change
3: in the range of literature available. Also, many of the kinds of literature that we now think of as the most popular literature were actually not easily accessible and affordable. For instance, new novels and right through into the 1820s, a new novel would have cost the equivalent of a working person's wages for a week. So oh, I understood that right. some forms of literature were extremely expensive. And for that reason, people found different ways of getting hold of copies. There was um, a rise of circulating and um, libraries, lending libraries of various kinds. But even so, you know, people at the bottom of society wouldn't be getting hold of the latest novel. Tracts, pamphlets. Yes, many of those were cheap and also reprint literature. There was an awful lot of, you know, packaging of the classics of the past.
0: I mean, do many manuscripts survive from
3: that time? The manuscripts that went into the printing house, so went first to the publisher, then on to the printing house to be printed. Not very many survived, to be honest. And some writers were very conscious of a desire to keep hold of their manuscripts. So William Godwin, for instance, one of Johnson's circle, had his manuscript returned to him from the press, and we now still have them. But generally speaking, manuscripts were still seen as transitional documents at this time. What you're seeing in the age of Joseph Johnson is the rise of the author as a significant figure. Throughout the 18th century and before, authors were generally just people who wrote stuff for booksellers to sell. By the end of the 18th century, authors are becoming celebrities in their own right and this gradually has a consequence that authors' remains in the form of the manuscripts they wrote begin as well to accrue a certain kind of celebrity status so that by the middle to late 19th century, the manuscripts of writers like Keats, for example, and Walter Scott too, are seen as almost talismanic and they have a kind of magical quality. But that isn't by any means a a standard thing. So, for instance, we don't have any manuscripts of anything that Jane
0: Austen sent to press. Gail, I'm thinking John Murray, where you Mm. and, and Hazel initially met, there were some wonderful manuscripts there. I think you must have seen some fabulous things in the collection there. We, we did.
2: And I can remember vividly one evening where John and Ginny, or Ginny in particular because she looked after the archive, um, got out all these um, you know, extraordinary collection of original manuscripts um, and mm. memorabilia mm. Of, of one kind or another. I, I do remember seeing Byron's boot. <laughs> and actually, Jock Murray, when he was still alive, On one occasion gleefully showed me i don't know if i'm going to say this or not well anyhow i will i think you should um some pubic hair from one of byron's
3: mistresses (laughs) does history relate which one i
2: think she was an italian
3: (laughs) the murrays have a huge hair collection yes and they they have (laughs) cannonballs that byron picked up on the field of waterloo they have all kinds yes, of things. Yes. Certainly, I mean, John Murray, John Murray the Second, is publishing towards the end of Joseph Johnson's career. Yes, another and, bookseller and turned publisher with a very glamorous and very different kind of publishing model. I mean, he moves out of the city of London where Johnson always remains. He moves away from that area to fashionable London's Mayfair in 1812 and he essentially sets up a a different kind of literary salon. He too has meetings of his writers. It was in his famous double drawing room that Byron met Walter Scott and of course Byron was Murray's great writer and Murray had a relationship with Byron not unlike in a way Joseph Johnson's relationship with some of his writers in that Murray's investment wasn't just commercial in Byron Byron sent Murray gifts Murray offered Byron financial support
0: yes yeah, so Murray as you say the model was very different a bit more glamorous but yes. you know posher premises but the motivation was the same, wasn't it? It was books as a way of getting ideas out into the world. Books as a way of getting ideas out, and also he was an
3: experimental publisher. He would take risks on writers, and he would underpin these risks, much as Joseph Johnson did, with um, works that were much more lucrative. He had phenomenal financial success with Maria Rundle's Domestic Cookery, 1806. So a cookery book kept kept some of Johnson's more risky authors, including Jane Austen. I mean, he took on Jane Austen at the end of her career, and Jane Austen's books really didn't make Murray a lot of money. But he could, as it were, take these
0: risks. Miss, as you say, Gail, the bills have to be paid.
2: They do, and and it's still true of the big publishers that, you know, the educational list, dictionaries, manuals of one kind or another, they do underwrite the fancy literary stuff.
0: Mm. Uh, Daisy, there is so much we could talk about here, but I'd like to just, before we wrap this up, I'd like to just come back to Johnson himself and ask you how significant you think that group's contribution was to the Enlightenment.
4: But it comes at its it's kind of latter end. I think they're hugely significant in terms of how they kind of lay the groundwork for how you think about, as we've been talking, the ways in which you give voices to people who might otherwise not have one. Some of the work John's published is so important for the kind of romantic generation who come afterwards, but also for that model of conversation, sometimes dissenting with a small d as well, conversation which can be argumentative how you can kind of work your way to a kind of personal and political enlightenment through the exchange of ideas, sometimes combustible exchange of ideas with the people around you. That model of working and thinking and writing to a kind of enlightenment or improvement in the state of the nation and the state of your own understanding of the world is enormously influential. And you can see its influence right through the 19th century in the work of the early suffragists, you know, the Chartist movement, in terms of the kind of work that someone like Cooper lays for the role of the romantic imagination. So much of this comes through in quite concrete ways in the 19th century. But for Johnson and his writers, they don't live long enough to see that. So they really have to kind of keep the faith that this work of reading and thinking and talking will produce something,
0: which is more than the sum of its parts in their own lifetimes. I, you know, I'm going to I'm gonna leave it there. I know there's a lot more we could say. Daisy, Catherine, thank you very much indeed. So interesting. Slightly Foxed is a publishing house based in East London. It was founded by two editors, Gail Perkis and Hazel Wood. The team began publishing a quarterly magazine about all those great books on publishers' backlists that can be so hard to find in bookshops. They also reissue out-of-print books they think deserve a new generation of readers. Everything they publish is beautifully produced, from their pocket-sized, cloth-bound hardbacks to illustrated collectible editions for children. Posted out to subscribers in 80 countries, the magazine itself is a collection of readable and entertaining articles about all sorts of books, fiction and non-fiction. The contributors are equally varied. Some are distinguished writers, journalists or academics, while others come from very different walks of life. Now after 17 years, the Fox team still love finding new readers, so the annual subscription to the magazine is very reasonably priced – £48 a year in the UK and Ireland, and only £56 worldwide. Even better, your subscription gives you free access to the searchable digital archive, and that's over a thousand articles to explore sign up for an annual subscription at foxcourtly.com. Or if you'd rather speak to a person, give the London office a call on 020 7033 0258. Thank you. Uh, We have another of our Book Lovers days out. And Daisy, I think it's you, isn't it? You've kindly volunteered
4: I have a couple of suggestions if people want to see a good 18th century city literary house you can't do better than visit the Samuel johnson museum in london but i have another suggestion too which is benjamin franklin's house just off the strand in craven street where you can go on architectural tours and you can see franklin's rooms but also the rooms in the basement where his landlord son-in-law william hewson conducted anatomy experiments on rabbits uh, the results of which johnson published so it's a not so well known a building but it's a fascinating 18th century house and steeped in the history of Franklin as a politician but also his early work on electricity and you have to book you can book onto its architectural
2: tours but they're well worth it.
0: Yeah I didn't know anything about that I know Johnson's House in Gough Square has anyone been to either of those?
2: Yes we had um, a slightly foxed anniversary party at Dr Johnson's house with all sorts of contemporary writers. Fantastic.
0: I think we're gonna move us on to book recommendations. So Gail, what do you have for us?
2: Well, it's a very fat book. It's by Konstantin Paustovsky and it's called The Story of a Life. And it is in fact first three books of six volumes. And it's just been reissued in a new translation by Douglas Smith by Viking Classics the first volume starts with his childhood and ends in 1919. Pastovsky was born in 1872 in Moscow but he grew up in Kyiv and he became one of the most treasured Russian writers of the 20th century not I think much known outside Russia these days and his story obviously mirrors the story of Russia and then the Soviet Union. Uh, unlike many other writers, Postovsky never joined the Communist Party, but he somehow found a way to survive the horrors of Stalinist Russia, mm-hmm. um, but still to live a life of decency and to preserve a sense of inner freedom. The book is um, composed of a series of vignettes. Each chapter is you know, not more than 10 pages. It's quite hard to describe because he takes a particular instant, or a particular place or a particular event and gives you what well, you feel as if you're there with him watching things happen so he goes fishing with his father, he goes on a journey up into the Caucasus with his father. There's a wonderful chapter about a teacher at school who has a private museum which he invites the young Constantine to go and look at one Sunday afternoon. I think the thing that struck me most was particularly in the early part of the book how vividly he paints a picture of a really vibrant cultural life, life before the sort of grey Stalinist years. It's a wonderful book. I haven't finished it yet, but it is one of those books where you can read a couple of chapters each night. And if you've forgotten what you read, it doesn't matter because (laughs) the next vignette is something Something completely different. different.
4: Daisy. I read a fantastic new novel this summer by a writer called Joanna Quinn. It's her first novel. It's called The Whalebone Theater. And it's just a glorious pageant through the history of of the, the First World War up to the right in the midst of the second. It's done very, very well and it deserves every accolade that's been thrown at it. It transported me. I absolutely loved it. But I'm afraid I'm cheekily going to have two because (laughs) the other thing I've been doing this summer is rereading Austen in order to teach Austen this autumn. And I know this is the least original thing in the world to say, but I'd always (laughs) have my favourites, which were Persuasion and Pride and Prejudice, depending on my mood. But I just cannot get over the brilliance of Emma. And I, I I know this is ridiculous because everybody knows this and I've read it before, but I just the way in which its central joke hides in plain sight in every page struck me this time in a way it never has before it's it's so unbelievably
0: funny <laughs> well I, you can never recommend austin too often for me so <laughs> they're books you read again and again and i think it's absolutely delightful and you see something you... different every time you yes, read. yes even for you you know as a professor of literature so i, I find that very heartening
3: Catherine. My recommendation is actually a writer and it's Winifred Holtby. Ah, Women are regularly written out until they're rediscovered. And that was true of Wollstonecraft and it's true of Holtby, I think. I've been thinking recently about women who came of age a hundred years ago. And in her book, Women and a Changing Civilization, which was published in 1934, Holtby is actually thinking about Mary Wollstonecraft. She's thinking back her own hundred years. It's a book in conversation with Wollstonecraft and its aspirations are the same as Wollstonecraft's but they're still pertinent today. She talks about, is there a woman problem? How is it in 1934 that women can join the professions? Women can be medics, women can be teachers and yet when it comes to needing somebody to care for someone at home, it's always the woman who has to do it. She also Holtby wrote the first critical study in English of Virginia Woolf, which came out in 1932. Much to Woolf's amusement, Woolf was rather patronising and condescending towards Holtby. Well,
0: nothing Um, new there, surely. No,
3: (laughs) absolutely not. But what's so interesting about this book is that she wrote it because she understood that Woolf was a great writer and that she herself really wasn't a great writer. But what you were struggling with is how you square aesthetics with a wish to effect social change. And, of course, that is something that Mary Wollstonecraft wouldn't have felt a need to kind of try to square because it's so obvious that affecting social change through writing is important. Why did it become less important at a particular moment so that Woolf could be so patronising towards a writer like Holtby? I and mean, Hopeby died at 37, yes. but soon after Holtby's death, Woolf is reading Holtby's last novel. She wrote six novels in her short life. She's reading South Rider. And Wolfe says, A good thing to read one's contemporaries, even rapid, twinkling slice-of-life novels like poor WHs. Oh, goodness. But South Riding, it's a kind of amalgam. I mean, if we read nothing else, we should read South Riding, I think. It's obviously carefully modelled on George Eliot's Middlemarch. It's a beautifully written novel in many ways. But in it, there's a heroine, Sarah Burton, and she has a wonderful line, and she says... I was born to be a spinster, and by God, I'm going to spin. <laughs> and I, I think Wolfe sees the heroine and her yearnings as the problem in a George Eliot novel. And it's the problem that Holtby wrestles with very generously. She is so generous towards Wolfe. So, mm. Holtby, I think we should all be reading
0: Holtby. Yeah, I'm with you there. Yeah. Um, Hazel.
1: Well, the book I'm going to recommend. I actually read it as a possible slightly foxed edition and it doesn't really quite fall into that category because it's not a memoir as such. But it's a book called The Time by the Sea by Ronald Blythe and um, dear Ronald, he's, he's 100 this year. I love his writing it's it's sort of so honest and sort of clear really and this is about the time in the 50s when he first went to the Suffolk coast near Alborough. he started out in a bungalow at Thorpness as a very sort of hungry and poor young writer trying to write his first novel and um, this was the time when the Alburgh festival had just started up and he got taken up by the sort of group of people around Benjamin Britten and Peter Pears and people like Ian Forster Mervyn Peake, everyone, many literary people and artists went there but it was still a very remote place and he catches the sort of feel of that coast and the bleakness of it and the winter he started off it was so so cold you know and he describes the frosty mornings and so on so it's a very evocative book and it's also about this group of people Imogen Holst was very notable. She went and worked with Britain. And also there are little excursions that he made to Bottengom's farm, which is where he then lived all his life. In fact, Gail and I did visit Ronald Blythe there at one point, and We it, went for tea, like, didn't sort of, we? Yes, we had tea with him and it still feels very sort of remote. It's, it's just a sort of picture of a moment and also kind of very human as well about the squabbles and difficulties there were at the beginning of setting up the festival. It is a series of little vignettes, really, but I found it um, deeply soothing. I always feel I've sort of somehow been done good to when I've read Ronald
0: Blythe. So mm-hmm. I, I highly recommend that. Sounds spot on for autumn somehow. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. On those uh, beguiling recommendations, we're going to leave you, but many thanks, Daisy and Catherine. It's just been fabulous having you with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Investigate the show notes on your app or indeed the FOX website if you need a reminder of the title or name of a book or writer we've mentioned today. Foxquarterly.com is the web address. I'm happy to report that the FOX podcast continues to make its way around the world uh, with each episode setting a fresh record for listeners. This is due in no small part to all of you who very kindly rate, review and recommend us. So thank you. And uh, for anyone who hasn't perhaps thought of doing that, Please do take a moment if you can spare the time. The Fox team read all your comments and reviews. We are always glad to receive your honest feedback about the podcast too. We will be back with another quarterly podcast on January 15th next year. Not that far away now. In the meantime, don't miss the next quarterly magazine. Gail, when is that out? It's published on the 1st of December. And as ever, thanks for joining us on another literary trek off the beaten track.